FDBHDD is reminding Georgians to ask their doctor about alternatives to opioid pain medication. Alternatives such as over-the-counter medications and physical therapy can be used to manage pain. More information at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Political Rewind. Today we take a step back from political headlines to take a look back at one of my favorite shows in my years at GPB. Every year when Black History Month rolls around, I think of my early experiences after moving to Atlanta back in 1983. I'd grown up in Chicago in the 60s and watched the civil rights movement unfold from afar. But one of the most meaningful aspects of moving here to the center of the civil rights movement was actually getting to know some of those courageous leaders I'd only seen as figures in the news confronting racism and discrimination. Ralph Abernathy, John Lewis, Joseph Lowry, James Orange, Hosea Williams, or Nona Clayton, and others became people I covered frequently as a reporter. Of all of them, it was Andrew Young who I got to know the best and who eventually became a good friend. Several years ago, Andy Young and I were invited to sit down for a conversation in front of a live audience at the Carter Center. Most people know his resume, congressman, U.S. ambassador to the U.N., two-term mayor of Atlanta, leader of the effort to bring the Olympics to Atlanta, or some of the highlights. But I wanted to talk about the steps he took in becoming the leader he's known as today. Our discussion took us from his childhood in New Orleans to the Oval Office of the White House to the parking lot of the Lorraine Motel in Memphis on the night Dr. King was assassinated. I love this conversation because it truly is Andrew Young at his best unfiltered self. Andrew Young and I have known each other for almost 35 years. First as a uh, politician, a political leader and journalist, and then I'm really very pleased to say we've become pretty good friends in the years. We started out friends. Because uh, I like cantankerous people. Yeah. <laughs> so do I. So, so do I. All right, you want to do this? Yeah. It, one thing, though. <laughs> See? This is what I'm talking about. That one of the things that I learned in politics <laughs> is you always get your message across, and it doesn't matter what question they ask, you say what you want to say. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's do it. Andrew Young, Ambassador Andrew Young, uh, thank you so much for joining us here live at the Carter Center for a two-way street. It's really a pleasure to have you here. Well, it's a pleasure to be here, both uh, at the Carter Center and with you. You once told an interviewer, the only way I can explain everything that's happened in my life is to put God in the picture. Because I didn't know what I was doing, didn't plan what I was doing. I don't think Martin did either. I think we were successful because we allowed ourselves to get swept up in the energy of history. And that theme recurs for you over and over as I've researched uh, your life. Yes? Yes. I spent my early childhood fighting against my father. He was a dentist. You grew up in New Orleans. He, he was determined that I would be a dentist and a baseball player uh, because he'd played baseball to get through dental school. 
uh, up in the Catskills, and that was a good way to make money. And uh, uh, he wanted me to be follow, walk in his shoes. And I knew I loved him. I agreed with him, and he he gave me the meaning of my life. Maybe when I was four years old, he taught me not to get angry. So you grew up in a professional household, your dad the dentist, your mom a teacher. You grew up in a family that had more resources than many, and there were always tensions around that, weren't there? Well, because it was was a mixed neighborhood. New Orleans neighborhoods are not segregated nearly as rigidly as even Atlanta. Uh, And so there was an Irish grocery store on the corner, an Italian bar, and the headquarters of the Nazi party was on the third corner. And um, we had to walk by there to go to my aunt's house. And the so, Nazi The Nazi headquarters. Yeah. So on, on Saturdays, they would be in their brown shirts and swastikas, and they'd be hiling Hitler. Uh, and my father would explain this to me as a four-year-old. And the reason I remember the, the year was that it was 1936. And the way he explained it to me was by taking me to the movies to see Jesse Owens in the 1936 Olympic Games. And he said that Nazism is a sickness. In fact, white supremacy is a sickness. And you don't get upset with sick people. You have to find a way to help them. If you get angry and emotional about it, you're in danger of catching the sickness. And then he took me to to the movie, which is where the seed for the Atlanta Olympic Games was planted. <laughs> uh, and he said, now watch Jesse Owens. This was in Berlin, of course. It was, the, the, oh, it was Berlin Olympics, 36. We were in the movie tone news, and he didn't like to go to segregated theaters, but he took me to the segregated theater to see that. And uh, Jesse Owens won the first race, which put, it was 100 meters, and it, it, that put a lie to white supremacy. And Hitler, instead of giving him his medal, got up and stormed out and took all of his people with him. And my daddy pointed out and said, but now watch, Jesse does not get upset. He just went on and won three more gold medals yep. and broke three more world records. See? And he said, don't get mad, get smart. You said a really interesting thing that relates to that specifically once. You said this. You can't be blamed for being born white, and there is no moral superiority to being born black. Well, Dr. King used to say that all the time. Oh, he did? Okay. He used to say, look, you, there's no virtue in your being on the bottom, and there's no virtue in being born with privileges. And said, frankly, we, we, we have both. I mean, one of, the th- one of the things that my father refused to let me embrace and that Dr. King refused to let me embrace was a sense of victimhood. That you're not a victim. You're born. And with your birth comes blessings and responsibilities. A number of years ago, you were one of the people interviewed by the great writer Robert Penn Warren, who did a project called Who Speaks for the Negro? And here's what you said. We had a strange social dynamic in my neighborhood. Financially, we were better off than the whites, and they were prejudiced against us. Our parents had certain class prejudices against them and some of the blacks who were in the neighborhood. 
and you say from the time you were six or seven, you were caught in this dilemma and decided, you know what, people are people. And the entire 30-some years I've known you, that has been the clearest thing I've understood about your philosophy. Well, it's, tr it's true, and, and I guess it's no virtue if you're born in that mess. <laughs> I mean, you, you, you accept your birth, there, and, and I, there was nothing I could complain about. Yeah. I went to what people nowadays would consider the worst school in the city, maybe. They, they call it the bucket of blood. It was a, a rough neighborhood. I mean, I knew about drugs when I was in third grade. Did you ever, were, were you ever tempted? Never. Okay. Because I always associated with sickness. Okay. And I always associated it with weakness and poverty and despair. And there was no thrill to it. There was no temptation. I didn't want to be like that. My father didn't smoke, didn't drink. And I never smoked anything. And um, I didn't start drinking until I got to be a preacher. <laughs> and it was, it was basically going into religious conferences in Europe where wine was a part of the dinner. Uh, we didn't even have wine in com as communion in my church. Well, I want to talk about your church. You went to uh, Central Congregational? That's right. It was a, it was a New England Congregational right. church where nobody said amen very much. Yeah. Uh, there was no audience feedback. And, and the preacher usually read the sermon and I usually slept. <laughs> <laughs> Later, when you started seeing African-American Baptist churches, those joyous, energized encounters between the preacher and the congregation, were you at first, did you like it right away? Or did you say, why are they behaving that way? I think there was always a tendency on my part to identify as much as possible with the least of these. I appreciated it, but for instance, I didn't, I mean, the, the biggest mistake that most of the folk in SCLC made was they tried to preach like Martin Luther King. And I say that at Morehouse all the time, that if Martin Luther King had tried to preach like Howard Thurman, who was a Quaker mystic, we never would have had a movement. And I never tried to preach like Martin Luther King because I figured I had, a, I, I had to find my own voice, whatever that was. And I think that, that uh, that's what everybody has to do. So we're going to move forward in, in a second. But before we leave your childhood completely, you had, a, you're, you had a grandmother who was virtually blind? Our grandmother lost her sight when she was about 80. And I was and about you, 8. And you read Bible to her every and day? I had to, every day I had to read the Bible and the newspaper. Uh, including the number. <laughs> I mean, uh, the, what was yeah. that? Was did that was a bonding experience? Or did you resent it? Did no. it help you learn more about the Bible? Well, no. It not only helped me learn more about the Bible, but it gave me a philosophy of life. What? Which was? Which was? I don't know. That that you. She prayed for death. Every day, she fussed with God. So from her, I had no fear of death. And when I met Martin, Martin's, one of his mantras was, to be free, you have to overcome the love of wealth and the fear of death. Yeah. But, but I'd already gotten both of that from my mother, my grandmother. My grandmother was, 
a Creole whose maiden name was Zernowski. <laughs> really? Yeah. I mean, uh, and um, uh, her father was a Polish uh, captain. Her mother was, a, I don't know much about her mother, but she raised 11 children, though she only had five. And I never heard much about my grandfather uh, on that side. Uh, but my grandmother was sort of, I mean, all of the kids that she raised ended up successful. Uh, her blood children, my, uh, my mother was the baby. Uh, so they all sacrificed that she could get a, stay in school and get an education. The other quick note I want to make about uh, your childhood is that uh, because there were, it was, could be rough at times in the neighborhood, your dad wanted you to learn how to box. Well, we lived not far from the Coliseum, and those were the days of Joe Lewis, and, and uh, boxing was the, the way, the race relations. But you preferred running. Well, no. I, I, well, I, that's what you've said. Now, maybe. <laughs> well, no, I, 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 I loved to run, and I, I, I was always fast, and I, it bugged me, I think. I could fight, and I had enough fighting to get fighting out of my system, but it bugged me that I would have to read the papers and see that kids were winning medals and trophies at City Park, and I couldn't run because, because I was black. You were black. But if you have a fight and know how to fight, you might not win the fight, but you won't have to have a one because so, the guy will know that he can't bully you. I say that in that elementary school where I, I went to a kindergarten preschool, and so I was reading and writing. Uh, by the time I got six. Yeah. And instead of putting me in first grade, they put me in third grade. And I proceeded to get put out of school because to survive in third grade as a six-year-old, I had to make friends with the toughest, meanest guy in the class. Yeah. Yeah. And we got put out of class together yeah. for playing with an ice pick in the back of the room. <laughs> now, let me jump because he was the one that probably led me to the ministry. It was certainly not the path you expected to be on. I mean, your dad wanted to be a dentist. You didn't want to do that. Well, I like science. I, I didn't right. mind majoring in biology, and I like chemistry and physics. And I mean, I, I enjoyed school. I didn't make good grades, but yeah. I enjoyed the process. But, but you, you know, it's... Here's, I enjoyed the teachers. They just didn't enjoy me. <laughs> So we go back to this notion that God has a plan. The ministry called you. You ended up going to a divinity school at Hartford Seminary. Well, it wasn't that easy. It, it was, I mean, I really left college lost. You were 15 years old when you graduated from college, No, right? I was 19. 19. I was 15 when I went to college. Gotcha. Coming back in the segregated South, we had to stop where you could stop and one of the places where we could spend the night was in Kings Mountain, North Carolina. And there was a church conference there, and I wasn't interested in the church conference. And so I took a run to the top of, Mount, uh, top of Kings Mountain. It was actually Crowder Mountain, but it was in Kings Mountain, North Carolina. And for the first time at the top of that mountain and looking out, and everything seemed to make sense. And it just hit me that everything is there for a purpose. And if there's purpose for trees and grass and cows, there must be a purpose for me. And 
I came down from that mountain, I think first time I'd had a sense of peace. And I said, well, there's a purpose for me. I don't know what it is and I don't care what it is. I'll do the best I can one day at a time and I'll find my purpose. We're gonna take a short break, but when we come back, more with Andrew Young. Welcome back to this special edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. We're revisiting a conversation I had with Andrew Young in front of a live audience at the Carter Center in May of 2017. It was a very personal look at the events that shaped his life. I was reminded of the conversation as the country marks Black History Month, because Young, as a top confidant of Martin Luther King Jr., certainly has an important place in that history. As we pick up, Young is describing how, after graduating from Howard University with a degree in biology, he unexpectedly found himself pursuing the ministry. I went to my pastor my senior year in college, had just graduated from Yale Divinity School. Yeah. And he wanted me to ride out. To, he, he was scared of the South. He was from uh, Indiana and Connecticut. And he was invited to speak in Texas and asked me to drive him with him because he didn't know how to deal in the South. And I was very comfortable. And so I figured I'd go out there, drop my preacher off at the conference, and I'd go party with my roommate. When we got there, it was San Antonio was the nearest town, but it was over 100 miles. We didn't get there till late at night. And we hadn't seen anybody black since we left Houston. <laughs> uh, so he said, you're not going to leave me here alone, are you? And I said, no, I'll stay a day or two until some other black folk come. <laughs> None others came. So I ended up staying a week. And it was the first time I'd ever met white young people who were serious about Jesus. They were talking about uh, if their parents knew they were in a conference with uh, black people, they would disown them. My father would put me out of the house and she was the daughter of a Texas sheriff. And, and um, I said, well, why are you here? He said, because I think that this is what my faith requires. I said, your faith requires you to go against your father? Well, yeah, Jesus says, I never, I'd never met any white people who were serious about Jesus. Well, I want to pick up on that. You said, I think, a remarkable thing at one point. The person who taught you about Jesus more than anyone else, do you know who I'm going to say? Gandhi. Gandhi. You say, before my readings of Gandhi, I couldn't see what difference Christianity meant, made. That's true. Except I had, that was all in the same summer. That I, at that conference, I met these young white people, and all of them were planning to be missionaries somewhere. So they were going to India, they were going to, to um, Africa, to Latin America, and they all had some kind of purpose, uh, religious purpose, see? And so I'd never met people that were that serious about their faith before. Then they needed volunteers, and they didn't want to have it an all-white operation, and I was the only black person there, so that meant I couldn't escape. <laughs> I couldn't say no, and um, when they decided to send me, 
they were trying to find a place where they could send me as a volunteer, and they picked Connecticut and Rhode Island, and I was at Connecticut when I went to Connecticut to the Hartford Council of Churches, Connecticut Council of Churches in Hartford, they hadn't found a place for me to live yet. Mm-hmm. So they picked up the phone and they called the seminary. And the seminary gave me a guest room. <laughs> and I'm on a seminary campus without ever having applied. And I, I, I sort of meet guys coming back from the army. You know, and, and a seminary I thought was a pious, holy place. And um, the first guy I met said, what is a fine looking young man like you doing in a place like this? Are you running from some woman or trying to stay out of the army? <laughs> you know, and I said, these are my kind of people. Yeah, and so, all right, so, so you ended up at, at Hartford Seminary. So, well, it was easier than that. I went in to see the dean and asked him, could I, I sit in on some courses because I didn't know anything about the Bible. Right. He said, if you sit in on three, I can give you a scholarship. <laughs> all right. You did it. So you, you went through Hartford, you came out with a doctorate, what do you, no, what do you it's get? Just uh, a Bachelor of Divinity. Oh, okay, okay, gotcha. Um, one of the, uh, you had Quaker instruct, a couple of Quaker Two, instructors, yeah. and uh, they, one of them at least, exposed you to the writing of Thomas Kelly, Kelly. Holy Obedience. Yeah. Do you still remember the quote that you love from him? Uh, deep within us all, there is an amazing inner sanctuary of the soul, a quiet place, a speaking voice. Eternity is at our hearts, pressing against our time-torn lives, warming us to an amazing destiny. Wow. Is that phenomenal? And there it is again, this theme of destiny. And you. he also, I think, whether it was him or you said it, you said, I am a leaf in a divine wind, just floating from one thing to another. I felt an invisible hand was guiding me uh, to life from within. Destiny. Yeah. It's all about destiny for you. But you know, uh, that invisible hand yeah. was also Adam Smith in capitalism. Okay. Okay. <laughs> but, but let's so, okay. But I'm, I'm saying that... that, uh, that it's the way I evolved into the kind of person I think I am now that translates religion uh, into global economics. Gotcha. Okay, so let's move forward. Who did you meet first, Gene or Martin Luther King? Gene. You met Gene in Marion, Alabama. Yeah. She was milking, is this true? She was milking a cow when you met your first wife, well, Gene? But before I met her, okay. I went to her house and I decided I was going to marry her. How, why? Because she had a Bible that was underlined on the <coughs> table. And it was a Thomas Nelson version of the Bible, the New Testament. This was 1952. Okay. And it had just come out in 1950. And she had a Bible underlined, a study Bible. And a lot of the passages that she underlined were passages that were my favorites. Wow. She also had a basketball letter on the wall and a senior life-saving certificate. <laughs> now, I had been at Howard University, yeah. and I'd not known black women like that. Yeah. Okay, so, but the first time you actually laid on, eyes upon her, she was milking a she cow. She was milking a cow. Barefoot. Barefoot. 
in some cut-off blue jeans <laughs> and her hair uncombed, and it was the most beautiful sight I'd ever seen. And I did the most stupid thing. I went back to my car to get my camera because I wanted to preserve that moment. And she got up and she said, if my mother didn't need to make butter with this milk, I'd pour it all in your ugly face. And it was love from that moment on. I'm interested in the fact that you and Dr. King, and I'm not sure about Ralph Abernathy, yeah. but I know all three of your wives that came from about, from, from Perry County, Perry County and, and, Alabama. And you and Dr. King both pretty much fell in love at first sight with your wives. He with Coretta and you with Jean. How remarkable is it that all three of you, three of the really great leaders of the civil rights movement, all married young women who were from that same basic uh, well, because county. all of them had known the suffering and humiliation of racism. Yeah, Marion was a hard town, you've said. It was, it, it was for talented men like Coretta's father and Gene's father. And Coretta's father had three businesses that were destroyed just out of bitterness and envy. And he never got upset about it, say. He'd just go on back again. So let's, so you and Dr. King get to know each other. He's a few, he, how much older was he? Three years. Okay, he's three years older than you. You had had a congregation in Marion. Uh, so you were already a pulpit minister in those days. Of sorts. So, okay. Uh, so I was never quite a pulpit minister. And, because uh, you don't like to talk? No, because <laughs> I don't like to walk. I mean, Gene uh, and I both got in all kinds of trouble when we went to Thomasville, Georgia. Which was your first congregation, congregation in Georgia, Georgia right? Where, but she played on the women's basketball team at the Y, and I played on the men's basketball team. This wasn't and, done, was and, it? And uh, preachers are not supposed yeah. to be running up and down the court yeah. okay. in their shorts, and the preacher's wife, golly. Yeah. Um, so when you first met, uh, you had heard about Dr. King. He was already starting his, his civil rights activism. And you were doing voter registration. You were, was there early on before he became Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., was there any rivalry there? Did you ever feel jealous? Did you Hell immediately no. <laughs> look up to him? Did you understand he was the leader? Yeah, I did. How did that happen? No, he had done it. I, I had run a voter registration drive. And the story I tell that's most, that I want to tell just because it's Jean's story. Okay. And uh, her nephews, his wife are right here. Um, but when I, I started to run the voter registration drive because Maynard Jackson's grandfather asked me to do it, I didn't think it'd be a problem. So I went down and he was going to come down and speak in my church. On the way back from Albany, Georgia, where you had to go to get his Roebuck stuff, um, we went around a curve in Doe Run, Georgia, and there were about 100 Klansmen. Uh, and I said, we haven't seen the Klan before. They're probably coming for us. Yeah. Make a long story short, I had studied Reinhold Niebuhr. And I said, the, the I'm philosopher, the philosopher, philosopher. Yeah. Uh, who was against, he was an advocate of the just war theory he was critical of the church's pacifism and nonviolence. And uh, I, uh, my approach was that I'd always go to, if the Klan came to our house, I'd go down and engage them.
but I wanted Gene to sit up in the window with the rifle. <laughs> and then I could negotiate from a position of strength. I mean, that's American way. <laughs> but, but Jean but didn't she, like that, did she? No, she said, no, I can't point a gun at a human being. I said, but babe, that's the Ku Klux Klan. And she said, and you're supposed to be a preacher. I said, what's that got, what's that got to do with it? She said, if you ever forget that under that sheet is the heart of a child of God, you need to quit preaching. I said, damn, woman. <laughs> uh, and I said, we got, a, we got a three month old baby up here, you know, and if, 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 if they just throw a stick of dynamite here, we all gone. She said, well, I said, well, well, she said, don't you preach about the cross and the resurrection? I said, oh gosh. And she, she said, no, you, you have to sit and, and, and think this through because she pushed me and I said, well, let me call up the mayor. And I called up Mayor Watt, ran the hardware store. He called up the head of Flowers Bakery, who was still there, and Sunnyland Packing Company. They decided that the Klan had the right to march. And I mean, had the right to have a meeting at the courthouse square, but they didn't have the right to march in the black community. And both of the plant owners got on their plant microphones and urged their workers not to support the Klan. You know, here we go again. Your father told you, don't hate those neo-Nazis because they don't know what they're doing. They have a sickness. Gene says to you, Andy, they're underneath their robes. They're human beings. These themes keep coming back yep. at you and keep teaching you yep. the lessons that you've embraced for your entire life. That's really well, interesting. because it's always worked. <clears throat> right. I mean, the the the, uh, the next day, the Klan had a meeting that night, and all of people in town went around and stood around and watched them. Yeah. Uh, and then they went off, and we went home. So you became. Uh, a partner in civil rights and social justice with Dr. King. Um, you became the executive director of SCLC. Well, only after, see, I left the South. Right, went to and New went York. went to New York right. and uh, worked for the National Council of Churches for four years. And when we, the thing that brought us back, well, I first met Martin in 57 at Talladega College. Okay. The Alpha Phi Alpha fraternity was having a religious emphasis week. And I always say they invited him and they figured he might not show, so they invited me as a backup. <laughs> and we both showed up. And then, he, then we realized for the first time that our wives knew each other. And um, so we stopped off and had dinner with them. Didn't talk any politics, no race relations. He had, an, Yolanda and Andrea were about the same age. They were both a couple of years. Andrea was about a year old. And Yolanda had just been born, or vice versa. But that's how we met. Then I went to New York. So I think I'm right that when, while you were in New York, am I right it was Gene who said, said to you, on. they're doing important work down there, Andy. We need to be back there. She was watching Dr. King. And she was watching. It was John Lewis and Bernard Lafayette. Okay. And it was a Nashville sit-in story. Oh, and, we, okay. and we had bought a house in Queens. Uh, we were sitting down, you know, in front of the fireplace, relaxed in the suburban heaven. 
<laughs> you know, out of the South, and my parents were pleased. And um, we see John Lewis, Bernard Lafayette, Diane Nash, uh, Kelly Miller Smith. Young kids. Yeah, and the Nashville sit-in story, Marion Barry. Yeah. Uh, you know, and um, Jean said, it's time to go home. I said, we are home. She said, no, it's time to go back South. I said, where? She said, I don't know, but let's just go. I said, well, what do you want me to do? She said, I want you to quit your job and sell this house. And I said, well, and then what will we do? She said, I don't know, but we'll find out. That's when you came to Atlanta? Well, I, I, I at first accepted a job at Highlander Folk School, which was in Tennessee. Right. Okay, but you ended up in Atlanta. Because I didn't want to be a part of SCLC. Right. I figured the Baptist preachers wouldn't get along with me. From the time you became executive director of SCLC, you were with Dr. King almost all the time. You were at his side for everything. How do you describe that experience? Well, I think um, I count, counted myself as blessed to be there. And I saw him as the person whom I needed to serve and protect. Yeah. And Ralph had protected him very well against the viciousness of the black church, uh, which was very envious. Remember, Martin got put out of the National Baptist Convention. Yeah. He got expelled by J.H. Jackson. See, and, uh, but now, by the time I came along, he was being attacked by the national press. And I had, in New York, I had, uh, I had worked with CBS. Mm -hmm. I knew how the press operated somewhat. And so along with Wyatt Walker, who was also a fairly sophisticated guy with press credentials and the like, we, we kind of tried to manage the scene and be sure that the message that was coming out through you guys was the message we wanted. You had another role, uh, is my understanding. Uh, you had some people who were surrounding Dr. King who were, could be a little crazy. You, well, had, you had Hosea. Williams. No, but, but he, he, he made that a blessing. Well, yes. He said, he said look, you have to be certifiably insane <laughs> to, do, to think you can change the world like with as little as we got. But, but one of your jobs was to, I, I think. No, yeah, was, to be the right wing voice, to be the If Uncle you agreed Tom. with Hosea and the other crazies, that's right, you, you no, said it. No matter, what, no matter what they said, I had to come down on the other side. Yeah, I've heard you tell a story that uh, at one point you came down on, on the side of uh, Hosea or whoever it was, really wanted to do some crazy action, and you said, well, yeah, I think this is pretty good, and Dr. King uh, called you. I said, you, okay, I'm with you. And Dr. King and called, he stopped you aside. He said, stopped a meeting and he said, I got to run to the restroom. Andy, meet me in my office. And he said, look, what, what are you doing? I said, I'm just tired of fussing and being. He said, look, if you don't come down as far on the right as you possibly can, you got to give me some room in the middle. He said, they don't care. They want to get killed. Hosea really did want to get killed. <laughs> now, he, he had been in a, he had been in a, Terrible foxhole yeah. in World War II. That was a direct hit. Everybody had been killed but him. And he was living with survivor's guilt. Yeah. And, and he, uh, 
he kept wanting to get killed and he wanted to do things in a hurry. And Martin said, look, I'm not afraid to die. Yeah. I'm going to, I said, but I just, I don't want to die for nothing. We'll have more of my 2017 conversation with Andrew Young in just a moment. Let's continue now with my conversation with Andrew Young, which was recorded in the spring of 2017 in front of a live audience at the Carter Center. Before the break, Young had said that Dr. King told people he wasn't afraid of death. You all talked about death a lot, didn't you? All the time. How did you talk about it? He talked about it in terms of humor. Uh, he would normally pick somebody out and, you know, and say that uh, they'd probably be trying to get in the picture with the cameras coming and <laughs> they'd take a bullet for him that wasn't meant to him, but don't worry. Said, I can even preach you into heaven. <laughs> and did, then, did you make up uh, funeral orations for each other? No, time? he made them up for everybody. That was his role. He was, the, <laughs> he was the funeral preacher. And anything embarrassing and degrading and disgusting that he knew about you, he would put into flowery religious language. <laughs> See, and, uh, and he made us laugh at death. And, and that was the way he dealt with his own death. Yeah, yeah. Is it true that there was a pillow fight? Yeah. The night before? The day, uh, right. I had been in the courtroom all day long. We're in Memphis. We're in Memphis. I came Garbage back. strike, workers' strike. I came back, and he and uh, Ralph and uh, his brother, A.D., mm -hmm. and uh, there was a, the regular crowd was there, but I'd been gone in court all day long, and they were just really happy. He said, well, where have you been? I said, I've been in a court. Why didn't you call me? I said, well, I, no cell phones. I said, I couldn't get, I was on the witness stand. You should have found a way to write a note. I said, wait a minute, I'm trying to keep you out of jail. He said, but if I'm, no, I'm, if I'm here worrying about it, and finally he picked up a pillow and threw it at me. And I threw it back. And then everybody picked up pillows and started beating me up, which was typical. 15-year-old behavior. Was he, hard, was he a lot to handle? No. You, you know what I mean? He was easy? He was very, I mean, he was very genuinely humble. And um, it, uh, it, it was, and he almost feel guilt, felt guilty about his leadership role. Mm -hmm. And he always felt that he wasn't doing enough. And um, it, was, it was not, an easy, I wrote my book I call An Easy Burden. Yes. Being an assistant to him was an easy burden, but he had a heavy burden because every morning, every step he took, every decision he made was a life and death decision. How scary was it when you were out there in the street facing off against? I didn't get scared. Oh, come on. No, the only Wait. time I got scared was in Chicago. Yeah, you, are, you know, I'm, I'm from Chicago, as you well know. I was, I was comfortable with Southern white people. Even when you were facing, you were yeah. beaten at one point? In, yeah, uh, but I wasn't afraid. And I took my beating, and I got up, and I went back, and we finished the march. We were here a few weeks ago to talk about a book about the Great Society by an author named Randall Woods. 
the Selma to Montgomery march is uh, documented to some extent in the book. And someone who's in the audience got up and asked uh, uh, Dr. Woods whether the depiction of LBJ in the Oval Office meeting in the picture in which he met with Dr. King and you were there was accurate. Was LBJ recalcitrant? Did he say he didn't want to help you? Uh, no, and it was, was that true? Because I think no, it's not, is it? No, it, what happened was, and we didn't, we were to meet him five o'clock in the afternoon. We didn't get there till seven. In his favor, I found out later that the reason was he'd been meeting with McNamara. Okay, he was late. No, he, he, he held us up. Yeah. We were okay. meeting with the vice president and attorney general. He just heard about McNamara wanting to send troops to Vietnam. So this is December the 18th. We go in the office and he says, I'm with you. I know we need voting rights, but I just don't have the power right now to take on another civil rights battle. And he made the case. He didn't say Vietnam, but he talked about all of the other problems of being president. And that, that he just, he said, he kept saying, I don't have the power to, to go back to Congress right now. He said, but I, I, I do know, and you can count on my support when, you know, when the time is right. But right now, I, 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 I just don't have the power. We left, and I, real, I was very sympathetic to Lyndon Johnson because I think Martin was impatient because he kind of figured every day could be his last. Yeah. I always figured that we had to count on the long haul. I mean, I never thought this, I think that you, the students all felt that, you know, we were gonna straighten out Mississippi in 1964 in the summer. And they were disillusioned when by 65, Mississippi wasn't saved. Yeah. And, but I, I had made a commitment. I figured this was gonna be my life. And I wasn't rushing, I had to, but Martin knew that any day could be his last. And so when I, we went out, I said, well, what do, you, what, do you, what do you think? And he said, I think we gotta find a way to get this president some power. <laughs> I said, you Morehouse men. <laughs> I said, they, they, you all, I said, golly, here you are, five foot seven inches tall, 165 pounds, broke as a church mouse, and you gonna get the president some power. <laughs> and he said, he didn't say anything, he didn't answer me, he didn't take my, he didn't argue with me. He said, no, I think we gotta find a way to get the president some power. And, and, and that's all he would say, we gotta get the president some power. Talk just a little about what it was like that evening in Memphis. Uh, Where were you when uh, Dr. King came out of the room on the second floor of the well, I, I was I was talking to him and sort of shadow boxing with James Orange down in the parking lot. Everybody was happy. You, you were know. down in the parking lot. I was lot. in the parking he lot. Up above, and he yeah. came out and was kind of cool and he'd had a bad cold. And I said, you know, I think you better go back and get a coat, yeah. a top coat, because He'd really been sick. In fact, the night that he preached the I've Been to the Mountaintop sermon, uh, he had a fever. And we, we got him out of bed because the crowd was just, I mean, they, they, it was a huge church and they had more people in the street than they, I think that church seats about almost 10,000. It's like, it's the largest Protestant church that I know about. 
Church of God in Christ. So you told him to go back. He should get a coat. Coat. And it was almost like he was raising his head to see, you know, testing the weather, decide whether he wanted a coat or not. And, and I, I thought a firecracker went off. And I looked up and I didn't see him. And my first, he'd been so playful, I, I thought he was clowning. And I really, it didn't occur to me that he'd been shot until I ran up the steps to see. And I saw him laying there in a pool of blood. He didn't say anything after he was shot, did he? I don't think he even heard the shot. Yeah. The bullet hit the tip of his, his chin and went right straight to his spinal cord. So you first thought it was a firecracker. But when you realized what it was, given that so much of the time he had talked to you about death, do you remember thinking? No, I, I remember being mad. Sure. No, I was mad. And I, I was mad at him for going to heaven and leaving us in hell. <laughs> I mean, and, and my, my first reaction was, damn, we were just making it with you. How are we going to make it without you? If you go, I mean, I, I always kind of hoped we'd all get killed together somewhere. Yeah, I, I actually, I read a, a quote in which you said, I didn't give a tinker's dam or something like that if they had killed me instead of him. It was worse to me to be left on uh -huh. earth without him yeah. than to be dead. Yeah. No, because remember, death is a blessing. Death is not something I've ever been afraid of. I mean, that came from my grandmother. And you live your life maybe in hopes that through the meaning of your life, you will create more meaning on earth. And uh, death is a, you know, a blessing. Though I don't think of death as, as, you know, angels in heaven. I mean, I think there's plenty of work to do somewhere in this universe. Do you remember the last conversation you had with Dr. King? Yeah, was, uh, call me a <laughs> really? He said, where you been, little uh. <laughs> and, and he barely, almost never did that. But it was, to me, that was a term of great affection. Yeah. Is, is there a heaven? Yeah. There's life beyond this. There's, I mean, I, I just realized that yesterday in the, in, in the AT&T store. When I broke myself. I hope that's no. not what it looks like. No. I mean, I, I broke my iPhone and they were giving me another one. But then, there they're sitting side by side. And I said, I thought you were going to transfer. She said, it's transferring. I said, but you got no wires. She said, it's Wi-Fi. So, and I, I don't understand what's going on. I mean, I can t type in a book. And in five minutes, I got the book. There's so much about this universe that we don't understand, that it's impossible for me to put limits. I mean, if cyberspace is r real, there's got to be something even beyond that. So is there a God? Of course. And do you talk to him? Uh, not, uh, <laughs> I, 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 um, I, I'm, I'm a Jesus freak, maybe. And I think when, when Jesus said the kingdom of God is within you, uh, I, I, I try to seek what's deep within my soul to find a sense of direction, an answer. All right. I do have to ask you a couple more quick questions. 
what are the next frontiers? The civil rights fight is it's, not okay, let over. Let me just tell you, no. Is Black Lives Matter an no. outgrowth, an offshoot no, 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 of no. the civil rights movement that it, you were involved no, with it, or it, not? It's a cry of frustration. Okay. Because people did not learn the lessons we learned here. Now, we knew that black lives matter, but white lives matter too. Ferguson is a suburb of St. Louis. St. Louis is dying. I mean, they, they even lost their football team. See, and, and the people who are there, the cops are frustrated, underpaid, and undereducated, and the black folk are unemployed and angry. See, okay, so that's an outgrowth of anger. It's not a pot, you don't consider that a movement towards social well, no, justice. Well, it, it's a cry for justice. Okay, is LBGT... No, wait a minute. Martin said that violence is the language of the unheard. Now, they're not violent, see. They're, they're angry. So we're, we're really out of time. I, but I, we're, not, we're, we're not out of time. We've got a lifetime to figure out... <laughs> no. We've got a lifetime to figure out that just as we made Atlanta make sense, we've got to make Georgia make sense. You are all and about... how we're going to make the United States make sense. We were beginning to think of the world as a community that had to learn, as Martin Luther King said, to live together as brothers and sisters or we will perish together as fools. And I think that's where we've got to get. It's been a joy to get a chance to hear your thoughts on all of this and to think about this thread that goes through your life of destiny, of spirituality. And I think everyone who's here tonight would probably agree with me that, thank goodness, that hand has guided you in the direction that it has. Thank you so much, Andrew Young. For being here. On March 12th, Andrew Young will turn 90. A four-day celebration with the theme of peace and reconciliation will include a global prayer for World Peace Service, an exhibition highlighting the many phases of his career, and a gala birthday party at the World Congress Center. If you'd like to know more about the events, there's a link on our social media pages. That's it for Political Rewind today. See you again tomorrow. information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.